Thank you, Clinton. Thank you, team, for leading us. And how many of us believe that? There's nothing better than you. And for us to gather in this place and to worship him. And thanks so much for being part of Get Well. Uh, we're in this sermon series where we're studying the book of Colossians and how timely it is for us to have this study because we're living in a world uh, that seems to have lost its way. Uh, we're living in a world where it seems it's out of control. Uh, it's in a world uh, that has more questions than answers, so how timely it is for us to have this study. For us just to stop, for us to call time out, for us to take in a deep breath and for us to exhale, and for us to realize that we have a hope, and that hope is Jesus. A hope that's defined in uh, Hebrews that says to us, 619, as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. Jesus is our hope. Uh, that's why we created the sermon series uh, in the book of Colossians. Because this book of Colossians, even though it's small, my goodness, what a theological punch it uh, offers to us. As we look at this, because Colossians falls in a category of New Testament known as Paul's prison letters. That means for us that Paul's not writing this letter to the church in Colossae where he's in the comfort of his den or at his desk or at a coffee shop. Uh, no, Paul is in prison. And he is writing this letter to uh, the, the people in Colossians. And he is threatened. His freedom is gone. His death is imminent. Uh, who could blame the man Paul for it to be all about himself? But that's not the deal with, with Paul. Paul is not about himself. Paul is all about Jesus. Because in the first two chapters of Colossians, uh, we find that Paul mentions Jesus 50 times. He was obsessed with the gospel of Jesus and those who needed to receive the gospel. And I encourage you to read this afternoon, Colossians 1, uh, 25 through chapter 2, verse 5, because you'll see the passion that Paul had for the gospel and for reaching those that needed the gospel. Uh, with words like this, as you read in Colossians 1.29, it's going to be on the screen, and it says these words, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Uh, Paul doesn't do what he does for the kingdom in his own power. It's out of the overflow of what had happened in his own life. He just needed to share that transformation with others. He's just giving away what he found in Jesus. So Paul is all about Jesus. Let's talk about this Jesus and what we need in order for him to be our hope that's secure and firm. Last week, we began this series by talking about the greatness of Jesus. Today, we talk about the suffering of Jesus. We need to talk about these things, especially if we want to be all about Jesus just like Paul was. In Colossians 1.24, this is going to be our teaching text today. I want you to look at that. As Paul writes these words to the Colossians, here's what he says. I'm reading from the New Living Testament. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you. So time out. Uh, Paul is honored to suffer for the believers of Colossae. He is making that clear. Honored as he writes further, I am glad that I suffered for you in my body. Now, Paul 
is in prison. He's under house arrest. Uh, he's looking back over his life, and he is rejoicing in the fact that it is counted worthy. He is counted worthy enough to suffer for Jesus. Something that's kind of foreign to our Western world Christianity culture, right? He said, I'm glad that I have suffered for you. Uh, Paul, with a special calling from God, was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, which we are heirs. We have that legacy because Paul did that. Uh, we now are sitting here in this room. Paul suffered much in order to carry out that specific mission for Christ. And so he's sitting in his prison cell, and he's remembering all these things that he had to go through. So in verse 24, Paul's reflecting back. He's best basically saying, I count it as an honor, an honor to suffer for you, Lord, even in the smallest of, of ways, because there's no way that I can repay you for all that you've done for me. But Paul is not finished talking about suffering because he turns from the suffering of himself toward the suffering of Jesus. Look at how he closes out verse 24. He says, for I am participating, meaning joining with, I am joining with the sufferings of Christ that continue for Christ's body, the church. With the focus of today's message on the suffering of Jesus, let's look at those words that Paul chose in the latter part of verse 24, where he says, for I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for Christ's body, the church. Those sufferings that Paul is referring to, probably translated in uh, your Bible as afflictions. Afflictions means uh, persecutions. They mean pressures of life. We have no idea the struggles that Paul and the early church had to endure uh, for their faith. But those persecutions uh, that they had to go through for their belief in Jesus. Paul is co connecting the, the afflictions, the pressures, the persecutions uh, that he and the early church believers had to go through as part of what it means to be a Christ follower. Uh, for Paul, he leaves no doubt that because Jesus suffered for us, that that ought to be part of what we do as well. Uh, we ought to understand that there's suffering that goes along with our faith journey. For Paul, that's a no-brainer. It's kind of like this. It's two weeks ago in our discipleship gathering where we are reading through the Bible like Susanna talked about. Uh, we gathered around this table, and I asked a question of that discipleship group that I was trying to answer myself. And the question I asked them, uh, would we be around this table if it required suffering on our part, persecutions on our part, would we risk being around that table in order to study God's Word? And for us today, would we risk being here today in this worship setting if it cost us something? If we didn't know the outcome, if it might even cost our life? How much do we hunger and thirst for God's Word or for God in order to make that risk? Would we still be willing to be a follower of Jesus if it meant enduring our own pressures and persecutions and sufferings?
So in verse 24, Paul is referring to these afflictions or persecutions that he, that we as Christ's followers might have to face for our faith. But the word affliction that you have there in the New Testament, that word does not mean the sacrifice that only Jesus can make. He's just participating. He's making a list of all the things that he had to go through for his faith, but the suffering of Jesus stands alone. It's not even in the same league of what we as a follower of Christ might have to endure. So let's talk about this suffering of Jesus because Paul makes this turn going from just the suffering that we have as followers of Christ to the suffering of Jesus. Let's understand what that suffering might mean to us. When you and I hear the phrase, the suffering of Jesus, our thoughts immediately default to the cross, right? What happened at Golgotha? It was on Good Friday. And what Jesus went through, suffering for us on the cross, to do an in-depth study of the cross, uh, there are not words sufficient in order to describe the pain and suffering that Jesus had to endure on that day. While our focus might automatically default to Golgotha and the suffering that he had there with the physical pain, we have to realize that actually it was a day before Friday that Jesus really began to suffer physically. We know that he suffered physically in the garden where he prayed so hard that drops of blood began to come. Can we imagine? And from there, we realize that he was taken, he was arrested in that time of prayer. And he was taken to a time in which he went before an interrogation or trial uh, that was held at night by the Sanhedrin. Annas, who used to be the former high priest of the Sanhedrin, he had no jurisdictional powers. That means that he could not pass sentence for any insurrection that had happened. That was only uh, Rome's duty. They're the only ones who could do that. So Annas secretly orders a gang of temple guards to get with Jesus in a quiet place on the palace grounds in order for them to have quality, quiet time together. You know what I mean? Uh, night was dark. Jesus was blindfolded. They began to shout at Jesus, prophesy. And the beating begins. And the beating lasted for hours to a time in which the temple gang, temple guard, became tired of all of the violence they were inflicting on Jesus. Jesus is bloodied, he's bruised, his face is swollen. Exhaustion and weakness make it difficult for him to have any kind of coherent argument that could save him. Having heard of Jesus' arrest, a small crowd gathers. And person after person begin to come and give false testimony against Jesus. And you have to wonder what that meant to Jesus as he stood there listening to those lies. His death is imminent. And Jesus has marched to the palace of Pontius Pilate, the overseer of Rome. And Rome is the only one who could administer the sentence of crucifixion. 
And so Pilate, this Roman leader, he finds no fault with Jesus, no truth in what the religious leaders have said about Jesus. Pilate tries to set Jesus free. Pilate offers him an alternative. He, he asks, who would you rather have, Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowd shouts for Barabbas. As I sat in my study this week preparing for today, I thought right there. Right there was an image of what Jesus was going to do, not only for Barabbas, but for all of us. Taking the place of a convicted criminal. And there Jesus stood, the hope. With crucifixion being the pronounced verdict from Pilate, the Romans take over, and these soldiers, they are experts in crucifixion. Uh, what the temple guards did pale in comparison to what the Roman guards are about to do. Uh, to make a mockery, they get a crown of thorns, they put it down on his head, uh, they have a whip known as a cat of nine tails. And it not only whips the body, but it tears the flesh away as it's whipped. Uh, sentenced to 39 lashes. No one ever survives 39 lashes. And that's what they did to, to Jesus. Physically, Jesus suffered so much. Again, words don't describe sufficiently the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through. Then they made Jesus carry a cross. It was about a half a mile from where he was up a hill toward Golgotha is what it's called. It's known as a place of the skull. It's called that because so many people were crucified there that the Romans didn't take time to bury. All they did, they just cast the bodies to the side for them to decay. Thus the name, the place of the skull. On arriving at Golgotha, nails were put in his wrists. They were put in his feet. He was hoisted up on that cross. Later, a spear is put in his side as he suffocates there on the cross. And in the midst of all that had gone on, the greatest suffering that Jesus faced happened then. And the greatest suffering being when all the sins of the world were put on our Jesus. His heavenly Father, unable to look down on the sin of the world. And Jesus, sensing that separation, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there Jesus died. As you study the last hours of Jesus' life and all he had to go through, it's hard to capture and explain the pain of what Jesus went through that day, the suffering. There's no words that do justice to the physical suffering that Jesus had. What he went through just for you and me, may we never, never get over what he did for us. As I thought about that suffering that Jesus went through, I had to wonder, was there other suffering that, that Jesus went through uh, prior to Golgotha? How did his heart feel? What did he face in suffering that was beyond just the physical? As I began to ask that question, I began to read Scripture differently. And I began to wonder about his heart and suffering that he, he went through. You can just go back a week 
prior to Golgotha, just at the beginning, because there's several questions that you, you see the suffering that Jesus had. Uh, take, for instance, let's go to the triumphal entry in Ma Matthew 21. Uh, it's Passover week. Uh, G Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, the crowd welcomes him with palm branches and celebration. They're crying out, Hosanna, celebrating that he's a prophet. And maybe, just maybe, he might be the Messiah. The excitement of that day begins to build. They know that Jesus had taught as no one else had taught. They know the miracles that Jesus had performed that no one had ever performed before. And the excitement of uh, his interest, entrance reaches a fever pitch built on the expectations of what Jesus could do for them, possibly being the one that would free them from uh, Roman oppression. But this excitement will soon turn the other way. How fickle this crowd was on that day. Because if you look in Matthew 21, it's going to be on the screen, verse 10, they ask, who is this? And then they answer in verse 11. The crowd's answer is, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The question was, who is this? Is he an ordinary man? Or is he a fraud, a fake? That's what they wanted to know because the religious leaders, uh, they would want people to believe that he is a fake. For them, whatever Jesus has been doing, it's been by trickery. And even if it was supernatural, it was not from God. It was from the devil. Is Jesus a prophet? Now, a prophet's a big deal, but it's not big enough. Is he a king? That will be a question asked later on in his life. Or is he perhaps the Messiah? Prophet, king, Messiah. Who is he? The question for us is the same, who is Jesus for us? We haven't seen the miracles that he performed in the Bible, but we've seen miracles in our life. And the miracles that we've seen, they're no less powerful than what was back then because lives have been changed. Life has been transformed. We've seen that. Who is he to us? Is he just an ordinary man? Some people today say that. Others argue, is he someone who doesn't exist? That argument is part of our culture today. And others would say, yes, he's someone special, but he's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's not a Messiah. With all that Jesus knew that was ahead of him, that would end at Golgotha, you have to wonder how his heart felt. As that crowd sorted through what they believed him to be or not to be, it causes me to wonder about our heart today. As you and I sort through the response to that same question and how fickle we are as well, I wonder if Jesus thought then as he thinks today, what else could I say than I've already said? What else can I give than I've already given? thinking about our answer to that question, who is he? I just had to wonder, had to wonder how refreshing it would be to hear someone say, for me, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
No matter what anyone else says, no matter what social media depicts him to be, no matter the naysayers that question, no matter the crowd that I want run with depict him as that, that doesn't matter. But for me, he is a Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's my Savior. That's my Jesus. Entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you have to wonder how his heart broke and how it suffered knowing what was ahead, but what he was experiencing then. Another example that I found, same chapter, Matthew 21. Uh, it's a story that you read about in verses 12 through 27. There is Jesus cleansing the temple. He saw business going on in the temple, a lot of buying and selling of different things that did not belong in the house of worship for God. Jesus saw what was wrong, and he didn't call a committee together, no. What he did, he just took care of it. He got rid of it. The money changers, he threw them out. He overturned their tables. He said, you need to get your focus back on God. You need to get about prayer to God. You need to get about service to God. It was his enemies this time that asked the question that cut him into the heart. If they only knew who was standing before him, they asked by what authority, what authority are you doing these things? They ask, who gave you this authority? You see that in the verses. Now, for us in our day-to-day, -day, we don't ask that question in those terms. But it was important to them because these religious leaders wanted everyone to know or think that they were the ones who had authority short of God. They were the representatives of God to the people. They were the ones who had authorities, not Him. So as Jesus came along and it looked like he had authority and they didn't, uh, that was very troubling to them. His authority went against the storyline line that they were trying to impose on the people. So they confront him. They ask, by whose authority? Who gave you this authority? And the answer is obvious, God did. God gave me that authority. It came from God. It was heavenly. It was God's authority because I'm God's own son. And can you imagine what Jesus must have suffered in that moment? Standing before religious leaders, people with the call to point others to him. But they chose not to point to him, to Jesus. They wanted it to point to themselves because it's all about me. Look at me. Look at us. It's all about us. And not about you, Jesus. Does that suffering that Jesus experienced then still go on today? I'm afraid to say that it does, doesn't it? Because the question is, who's in charge? Who has authority? Who has authority over your life? Who is ultimately in charge of this world? Who is the ultimate authority for you? It still is Jesus. Yet, truthfully, we kind of like being captain of our own ship. We like navigating this life. And if we have a 911 call, we'll call on Jesus then. But up to that point, the authority is on me. And I'm very comfortable in navigating my life the way it is. And folks, that's the constant battle that you and I have. It's the we got this mentality. We answer by whose authority a little different. But it makes you wonder how that must have broken Jesus' heart to have heard that question asked. There's another question real quick. 
Uh, it caused Jesus' heart to, to ache and suffer because of before the physical suffering on the cross. This time, Jesus is not with enemies, not with religious leaders, but He's with His closest of friends. This time, they're in an upper room. They are celebrating a Passover meal, something that each one in that room had done since they were born. And Jesus changes the liturgy because as He talks about the bread and the cup, He says to that group, one of you who dips your bread in this cup you will betray me. And of all of a sudden, a hush fell over the room, and they began to ask the question, is it I, Lord? One by one, they went around the room, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? And they went all the way around the room until they got to Judas. And I want you to see it on Scripture, if we put it back up on Matthew 26. Because as they go around the room, Look at what it says. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. What did the others say? Surely not I, Lord. But here is surely not I, Rabbi or teacher. We also ask, surely not me. How could I betray? But we already have, haven't we? We've sinned. We did what God didn't want us to do. Uh, we kind of betray Him. And that necessitated His Son dying on the cross for our sin. And He did so willingly. Surely not I. Is it Lord? Or is it Rabbi for us? Jesus knew then and He knows now how we are and what we are. And still knowing all of that, he set his face toward Golgotha to suffer for you and me. Here's the last one. It's in Matthew 27, verse 22. We're just hours away from Jesus being put to death. He had been betrayed, arrested on Thursday. He's tried by the different official groups. All of that on Thursday night and Crucifixion is about to happen. And so, in Matthew, Matthew 27, 22, uh, we find ourselves in Pilate's palace. And Pilate is the one who asks this question, and you can imagine the suffering it brought. Because Pilate, a non-believer, asked, what shall I do with Jesus called Christ? And they answered, crucify him. Pilate was arguing on behalf of Jesus. What crime has he committed? And they just cried out, crucify. What has he done worthy? Putting him to death? Nothing. What sin has he committed? None. And yet, in a few hours, all the crimes, sins of humanity were going to be placed on this individual. And on that cross, Jesus suffered, and then he died. Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus called Christ? We can tweak that question for us. And the question might be, what would you do with Jesus, who's called Christ? Pilate asked the crowd, because he didn't want to shoulder that responsibility of sentencing him to death on his own. He would rather set him free, free but the people wouldn't have it. What do you want me to do with Jesus, the one called Christ? The obvious answer is just to accept him. 
Accept Him as your Savior. And most of us have done that a long time ago probably, but that's not the end of it. You can't just accept Him and then go on about your business and do nothing. That's not what a follower of Jesus does. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God? What are you going to do with that? Today, this day, right now, is a great opportunity to express that commitment and affirm your belief in all He has done for you. Even in the horrific suffering that Jesus endured on the cross at Golgotha, the bottom line we need to understand is that the cross has a final word. Jesus has done the final work. Jesus did it. He paid for you. He paid for me. It's the miracles of all miracles, the miracles of the cross, the death, the resurrection, our salvation, all done for you and me. With the theme of today's sermon being about the suffering of Jesus, I want to encourage you to be open to the miracle of His suffering for you. Embrace the great work of God for your soul. He paid for you. On the screen, I want you to say this with me. And it's a simple statement, but it said, He paid the price for me. Will you say that with me? He paid the price for me. One more time. He paid the price for me. I heard that same statement. It wasn't long ago, but it was in the strangest of places. I'd heard it said in a Starbucks checkout line. Uh, I was driving through to treat myself to coffee on that day. I don't usually do that, but on this day I said, Bill, you need a treat. And there were several cars in front of me. I made my order. I was driving through, and car after car got their order. And once I got to the window, I gave the barista my money. And she said to me, the car ahead of you, which had driven off by that time, paid for you. They said they recognized you from church. <laughs> and they wanted to cover the payment of your coffee. I didn't know who that person was. I do know they are, without a doubt, a Christian of the high standard. <laughs> I might mention that they have set an example that all of you could follow, <laughs> given the chance. The attendant showed me the money, and there was going to be change left over from my purchase. And I looked at the change, and I did what any pastor would do. I ordered food. <laughs> but what I did not do, I did not refuse the gift. What I did not do, I didn't say, no, I'll pay for my own. What I did not do is say, I don't think you're serious about paying for my coffee. Not at all. I just received it. I greatly, gratefully received a generous gift. Won't you do the same with what Jesus offers to you today? And the suffering He went through just for you and for me. Some of you are living with guilt of the past, and that's so toxic. That can be set free. Of all the miracles of Christ, this is the one miracle that you receive. This is the one miracle guaranteed.
Yes, I pray. I pray for a miracle and hope of healing of your body. I pray for the miracle and hope, healing of your marriages. I pray for the miracle and hope of the healing of this COVID mess. I pray that fear will be abolished. But whether he does that or not, one thing is for sure. He paid for your soul. That's done. That's finished. And it simply falls to you to say, yes, thank you. I received that gift and that payment for me. He paid that price for me. All the suffering was for me. It was for you. Why wouldn't you do that? You can say, oh, oh I'm not worthy. Of course you're not, not. None of us are worthy, at least from our perspective, but from God's perspective, you're worth dying for. So our perspective is not even considered an argument. It's not part of the discussion. Jesus suffered plenty beyond any words that can describe his pain. But what he decided in his heart, you are worth dying for. For us, we only need to say yes. I do receive that payment. You may say that's too good to be true, and it is. But rest assured, it is true. Whatever needed to be done and paid was done and paid. We just receive it. And we say yes. And we live this life of ours now like we were worth all of that suffering and we are worth his dying for. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Mm. Only Jesus. Your suffering, your pain, your tears. But you had our names on your mind, on your heart. And thank you for that. And we celebrate it. We receive it. And we say, I'm going to live like I'm worth the payment. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place as I pray for myself. Transform us. Allow us to be just like Paul. Where we live this life all about Jesus. You are so worthy. And it's in your sweet name that I pray. And the people of Getwell said, Amen. Altar rails are open as we sing our final song. Hunter's going to be on this side. I'm going to be on that side. You come down. If you want to kneel and you need someone to pray with you, just raise a hand. We'd love to come and just pray. But may we never get over, never get over what he did for us and the gift of our salvation. Let's stand, get well, and let's sing like we mean it.